From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, highlights of our conversations heard on previous episodes. On this week's episode, if you want to get visitation of your grandchildren, you're not entitled to a free attorney. Um, you know, all of the, if, you're, if you're about to lose your home in property tax foreclosure, you're not entitled to an attorney. So that's where organizations like mine and the other four civil legal services organizations in, in the city come in to, to fill that gap and try to assist people. We revisit our conversation with Gretchen Gonzalez and Maria Valeri of the Volunteer Lawyers Project. Afterwards and a big push to really reach out to as many people as we can and their families, um, bringing in their families while they're still with us and after um, to educate them and to let them know our resources that are available for their families. Another standout was our interview with the new Buffalo Police Department Wellness Coordinator, Officer Matt Cross. Finally, you know, Steve said something really important to me a long time ago. He said, you know, people want to see a reflection of themselves on stage, right? So it was important uh, to recognize that at some point, like, you know, we want to see stories about people who look like us and do things like us and stuff like that. We'll hear from Scott Barron and Peter Johnson from Road Less Traveled Productions wrap up the show. First off, Gretchen Gonzalez and Maria Valeri from the Volunteer Lawyers Project joined the show late last month to discuss their group of pro bono attorneys that have been helping members of our Western New York community. Among the groups they are assisting are immigrants who are caught in legal residency limbo, as well as low-income people and small not-for-profit groups. I really want to highlight what the Volunteer Lawyers Project is. For those that are unaware, it's it started now it's in its 40th year, correct? Yes, that's right. A big year for, for the VLP. Uh, between the Neighborhood Legal Services and the Erie County Bar Association, they in 1983, they kind of came together and, and the VLP was born, right? Yes, it was initially a project of the Bar Association of Erie County and Neighborhood Legal Services in 1983. And when it started, there was one attorney and uh, two other people running the pro- project. And then it grew so much that it, um, we decided to break off and become our own entity. And so now we are about 50 employees between two offices, one in Buffalo and one in Batavia. And the major point here is the the mission of the Volunteer Lawyers Project, which is to provide quality-free civil legal services for low-income people and not not-for-profit organizations, correct? Yes. Yes, and it's, it's we have a dual mission, so that's the first half. And ah. the second half is to involve volunteers in the delivery of those services. So we have we are a civil legal services organization, which means we provide free civil legal services to low-income people, and we do that through attorneys that we have on staff. So like I said, I have a staff of about 50 people. Um, and through our volunteers, we have a bank of over 400 attorneys in private practice that volunteer their time to take cases through us for free for our clients. And if I didn't mention off the top, Gretchen, you're the CEO of, of Volunteers Delivers Project. Maria, you're the pro bono manager at the at the VLP. Yes. Uh, so you're in charge of finding these these attorneys, these these lawyers to, to help in your mission. Yes, finding them, offering them, you know, training, mentorship, placing them with cases that hopefully they'll have a good experience with, so that they'll volunteer again. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, pro bono is a big umbrella. It's not just the volunteers. It's also um, helping students, placing students with internships um, in the hopes that they become a part of private public interest law and, and want to come and 
perhaps stay involved with us beyond graduation. But yeah. Yeah. The bars, I mean, the Bar Association of Erie County and Erie County in general, the legal community has a long history of pro bono work. Um, we're very lucky in that way in Erie County that, you know, there are so many, so many volunteers that we have, so many lawyers who really want to help and recognize that they have a unique skill set that can be of use to people who are, um, you know, at, at a disadvantage and wouldn't be able to afford their services. And as far as the, the service areas, it's pretty robust what the Volunteer Lawyers Project does. Um, I mean, I'm just going to rattle off some of the bankruptcy and debt, divorce, uh, a lot of family law, estates and wills, housing, eviction defense, immigration. We're going to get into the, that prickly uh, fields uh, eventually, but um, you've got uh, legal services for positive families and individuals, uh, something that you specialize in, correct, Gretchen? Yes. When I first started at VLP, I was a staff attorney in our in that program, and that program provides uh, generalist legal services, so basically any sort of civil case under the sun for people who are affected by HIV and AIDS. Uh, there's micro-entrepreneurship programs that you offer for low-income folks trying to start their own businesses, uh, something that in itself is uh, quite daunting for 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 uh, domestic residents and, and citizens. Uh, you also have nonprofit organizations that you, you service, uh, property tax foreclosure law, tort. We're not going to get into torts today because that's <laughs> uh, the riveting field of tort defense. But uh, just those are some of the, 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 the subject and service areas that you all service. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 great. It's a great service you're providing. Um, yeah, it's something that, um, you know, I think that a lot of people don't, recognize unless you've been in legal trouble, unless you've had an, an issue that comes up. You know, we've all been inundated with the Miranda warnings that you see on the, t on the TV, on the cop shows. You know, you, mm -hmm. if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. But that's not true in all cases. So if you're facing the loss of your home to eviction, you're not entitled to a free attorney. If you want to get visitation of your grandchildren, you're not entitled to a free attorney. Um, you know, all of the, if, you're, if you're about to lose your home in property tax foreclosure, you're not entitled to an attorney. So that's where organizations like mine and the other four civil legal services organizations in, in the city come in to, to fill that gap and try to assist people. And I, I glossed over name change. I thought that was when I was first looking at everything that, that the VLP does, uh, I was like, name change, huh? That sounded sound like a vanity uh, service, but it serves a very vital one for the underserved Yes. populations that they, that they... Yes, there's a lot of different ways that the name changes come into our office. Um, you know, there is you know, people who are transgender who want to change their name and their gender marker. We do that. Um, there's also, you know, I had a case once where there was a, a child whose name was misspelled on her birth certificate, mm -hmm. um, and we had to do the name change to, to make sure that her documents were correct going forward. Um, we recently had uh, an immigration client who... Um, in his home country, everybody just has one name, not two names, not a first name and a last name the way that we do here. And as you can imagine, with all of your you know, governmental paperwork and, and, and things like that, just getting a driver's license and stuff like that, not having a first name and a last name becomes problematic. So mm -hmm. we're doing a name change for him to be able to, to give him that first and last name. I think one of the other areas that maybe we didn't put on the list, but uh, people tend to not know about is our low income taxpayer clinic. And that's another one. When I first heard it, I'm like, how, why are we helping? How do we, we're helping poor people. Why do they owe taxes, whatnot? There's a lot of people who are in disputes with the federal government, most times because they filed a tax return, claimed a credit, got the money, and then the government has come back and said, oh no, you weren't entitled to that credit. Well, now they owe this money back. They can't pay it. 
interest and penalties are accruing. So our um, low-income taxpayer clinic assists those uh, individuals through those disputes with the federal government to and the IRS um, to to um, get that under control. The l- largest amount of workload or caseload is coming in the areas of immigration and housing eviction, correct? Is that Immigration, housing, and family law are our biggest areas, yes. And like I said, we, we, we got to devote an entire segment mm-hmm. uh, to to immigration itself because that is a, it's, it's, it's one that's constantly a conversation to be had. But uh, as far as housing and, and the eviction defense, what are the major uh, scenarios that you're, you're that you tackle? Well, we're really still in a situation where um, there's a very high volume of cases coming through both Buffalo City Court and Erie County um, Hub Court. So, um, and a lot of that is stemming still from the pandemic. Um, there was a huge wave of uh, eviction cases that came out after the pandemic for people who weren't able to pay their rent during during the pandemic. After the uh, eviction moratorium ended, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, and in preparation for that, we worked with the other legal services providers in the area and the court system to create the Erie County Hub Court, um, which consolidated all the town and village courts into one housing part that's housed in um, Buffalo City Court and cases are heard virtually. Um, and the reason why that was important is because there were... Uh, I, I might get the number wrong, but I believe it was 35 town and village courts throughout Erie County, all hearing eviction cases. And there's only five civil legal services organizations in the county. And so it was impossible, you know, logistically for us to be able to serve all those people and, and get to all those courts. So consolidating them in one place allowed us to form, along with Neighborhood Legal Services, the Western New York Law Center, uh, Legal Aid um, Bureau of Buffalo, um, and uh, neighborhood legal services, and we formed uh, the Western New York Eviction Prevention. Oh, Center for Elder Law and Justice. We formed the Western New York Eviction Prevention Project, and we are now in Hub Court and Buffalo City Court every day for people who are uh, unable to pay for representation for themselves for the tenants to be able to represent them. Let's get into it. Immigration law. Uh, sure. We are we are a, we can consider Buffalo a border city. A, a, it's yes. definitely a sanctuary city. Uh, we have Toronto right right nearby. Uh, I, I recently spoke with Matt Tice. Uh, he's the in charge of the Vive Shelter, one of the uh, the many uh, refugee refugee resettlement agencies in our area, and he's just the main thing is they're inundated with with folks. Yes. Uh, unfortunate asylum seekers that are caught in in limbo because uh, this this the process to legalize residency or naturalization is just such a a lengthy and convoluted and a lot of hurdles to, to, to clear. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious uh, to hear your, your side being involved with, with uh, our asylum seekers. How, how, what are we dealing with as far as a timeline? How does that, how does one go about getting sure. legal uh, residency? Sure. So before I, I answer that question, I just want to say, you know, a lot of people don't understand why immigration is an issue in Buffalo. Um, okay. It's an issue in Buffalo because we have the immigration court here in Buffalo, and that court hears all cases in New York State outside of New York City. So gotcha. all the cases are coming through Buffalo at some point. Um, 
And, you know, uh, we also have a rich history of welcoming immigrants in Buffalo, which is wonderful. Um, our, as you've seen in the news lately, I'm sure our population grew for the first time in 2021 because we were welcoming people from other countries. Um, so people think that it's because we're on the border with Canada and it's people getting caught at the border with Canada, but it's really not. Um, people come in through uh, all different aspects. People, you know, overstay their visas or people come in through the southern border um, and they they end up moving either to where they have family here or they've heard something about Buffalo and they, and they want to be here. Or, you know, they get shipped here um, by the government or by, you know, some of the other states that have been sending people to New York City um, and people end up leaving New York City and ending up in Buffalo. So it really is a Buffalo issue. Um, and so that's the first thing I want to say. So in, at VLP, we have both a detained and a non-detained program. Our office in Batavia is solely immigration. Um, it's about half of what we do, and we have a public defender-style project there that represents everybody who's detained in the federal detention facility out there facing removal. We also have a non-detained program in our Buffalo office um, that's funded primarily through a grant um, from the Office of uh, Victims of Crime, which funds our work that we do with human trafficking victims. And we also have a grant uh, through the Office of Victim Services, which um, is for uh, crime victims, which ends up being a lot of domestic violence um, victims that we help in that project. But in addition to that, because we are the Volunteer Lawyers Project, we're able to serve a lot of other immigration cases by relying on our volunteers. And so, um, I'm going to let Maria talk more about what our volunteers do and our and our new uh, project in the immigration court. Yes. So right now, um, with, well, with immigration, even for the non-detained population, um, there's affirmative filing cases and there's defensive filing cases. So there are people who are already in removal proceedings. Um, they need representation, and any filings they do would be considered defensive filings. Those can be tend to be more time-consuming and require court appearances. But there are also a lot of affirmative applications that our clients need to file. Um, for example, um, if they've already had a green card for the amount of time they were required to have it and are now uh, ready for naturalization, we need attorneys to help represent them and help them get um, their, their United States citizenship. Uh, for people who maybe were granted asylum, one year goes by, it's time to file for their green card. Um, so we need um, attorneys to help them through that process. We have trainings um, that um, and mentorship for the volunteers that come forward to help these clients. And um, I can say with the affirmative applications, just really rewarding work. There's nothing like handing um, somebody's green card to them for the first time or imagine. being at their oath ceremony when they're sworn in as a, as a U.S. citizen. It is amazing. And they're, they're clients that they never forget you. Every, you know, holiday, birthday, you hear from the clients that you've represented over the years. You, you become a part of, um, you know, the fabric of their life. And in the case of asylum, if you represent somebody and, you know, they're granted asylum, you've, you've changed generations, the future generations of their family. And they, they appreciate that in a way you can't imagine. Gretchen Gonzalez and Maria Valeri from the Volunteer Lawyers Project. Next up. Faced with an unfortunate rise in police suicides, the Buffalo Police Department named Officer Matt Cross the police force's wellness coordinator. We talk about the stressors that our officers face on a daily basis and the work that he intends on doing to help our members of law enforcement. 
this is a, this is something that that's been in my mind for for some time. I have family ties to to law enforcement. People tend to forget. It's kind of I, I hate to say it, but it's almost because of of some outlier instances, isolated instances outside of Buffalo, and, and how police and law enforcement have handled certain instances. Uh, that's become kind of an easy easy entry point to to kind of ignore or, or not really look at the, the the law enforcement angle of side of this of every criminal incident or shooting there's a physical toll there there for the for the officers there's a mental toll you are formerly a part of the peer team at the buffalo police department so you kind of had you had direct contact with the, the individuals that have been around some of these very i don't, I don't want to delve into the details of but the effects of it they're they're coined critical incidents so these are going to be traumatic experiences, uh, both from the officer and whoever uh, was involved, be it a suspect, a victim. Um, you know, this can range anywhere from a traumatic car accident that takes lives to officer-involved shootings. Um, these, these things are what the public watches on the news as just crime that takes place or something something very bad that takes place. And when you are viewing that from an outsider's perspective. You're viewing it as the people involved uh, and their experience with it. But what you you tend to overlook is the police officer's experience because he's living through that with the suspect or the victim or you know whatever they're responding to. They take home with them, um, and and the big the big focus here is going to be how to to cope with that and deal with that and and make it through a, a very lengthy, difficult career uh, when you are seeing these repetitively. It's almost like the other first responders that deal with, with traumatic instances in their daily lives, you're, you're, you're seeing your partner shot. You're seeing, you're seeing a victim shot and killed or, or an accident, and you have to kind of just clean the slate and move on to the next day because people need to be protected. People need to be... Uh, criminals need to be taken care of. What is the current uh, procedure when an officer and or surrounding uh, department officers experience one of these critical instances? From our standpoint, from from the peer standpoint, and from a, a, a mental health and wellness standpoint, when something were to happen, uh, we try to dispatch to the scene directly and address the people from our end that were involved directly. Uh, that includes... One, if they're okay. Two, how are they doing mentally? Is there something that they need immediately? Is it something that can be addressed following up uh, in the next few days to the weeks? Um, we are sort of liaisons between the officers involved and kind of administration and the union altogether. So we want to make sure, you know, if it's something that they're going to be taken out of work for, uh, either during an investigation or they're injured, uh, that while they're off on that time, that they are being checked on and that they are okay. Uh, if they're not okay, uh, we will provide a referral service to clinicians, and they're all vetted uh, to, to work specifically with law enforcement. Uh, the point of that is being that the clinicians that they're seeing understand and have experience in the field uh, to help them 
cope and get through these things. As far as a law enforcement officer dying on, in the line of duty, is it, is it voluntary for their partner, their their fellow officers? Is it, is it up to them to then say, hey, I, I need to have I need to talk to somebody about this, or is it is there a system in place though after a traumatic event like that? For someone that's close to the person that's passed, say, voluntary, I guess, is, is the correct terminology for it because they don't automatically get pushed to go see a counselor. We can't right. mandate people right. to do these things. So what we'll do is we will check on them. We'll see where they're at. If they need additional assistance outside of the scope of our duties, we'll provide that that avenue for them. Um, if they are struggling to the point that they need to be relieved of their duties at work. That's something that is discussed with administration. Uh, the union's generally involved, and uh, time off is either taken on their own or if it's a extenuating circumstance that they're related to the case and they're taken off administratively for a certain amount of time. So um, we do the initial outreach and the, and the follow-ups to, to make sure that they're going in the right direction. Once again, I'm speaking with Officer Matthew Cross. He's the Buffalo Police Department's newly appointed wellness coordinator. And before that, as I mentioned, you were you headed the, the peer team, which was volunteer members of the police force that tasked themselves with kind of talking to members of, of the department that experienced some, some sort of mental health condition. With your direct involvement in that, what have you seen to be the biggest hurdles for members of your force to open up or... or get over some of the, the, I mean, I put it bluntly like that, but to work with the, 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 the stressors that they have on a daily basis? Because as it, it, you mentioned, it's voluntarily done. Are you finding that some aren't just, you have to really pry it out of them? or? That's the biggest hurdle, 100%, is we provide these avenues for help, and we're going to continue and push even harder. You can't force anybody to seek the help or to reach out so the, the biggest hurdle is, yes, uh, having somebody that is struggling, one, admit that, two, ask for help. Um, another thing that we really need to work on is as uh, a peer or somebody that works in the same station house or as a partner uh, sees somebody else struggling, we, we need to start using all of our people to start reaching out to each other and identifying these people if they don't want to identify themselves. So... You may not be struggling, but you know somebody it is. Give us a call and let us let us reach out to them. It can be anonymously. It can be however we need to approach that, just to check and make sure that we're doing what we can to get them what they need. And uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, part of the, the catalyst to the creation of this, that, that once again, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that we're addressing this, but on the unfortunate side of this is that there's been a tangible rise in police suicide in, in the area it's it's a it's a rising issue and and how are you practically attacking that whenever we lose a member uh, the peer team specifically will provide a family advocate and that that gets you through the uh, initial event we'll be at their house that day to to try to fulfill their needs uh assist them in any way possible to alleviate the stressors that come with that. That could be with funeral arrangements. That could be anything they need, a, a ride somewhere. Right. We'll stay with them, either by phone, nearby, wh whatever is needed, uh, as long as they'd like us there. 
as far as proactive goes, especially with uh, this new position being created, is, is, is so wonderful because it gives us more of a chance to focus all of my time directly, but also the, being able to be with the peer team and send them out in different directions and utilize them more. So we want to be checking in on people that are on IOD, that are that are suspended, that are even possibly getting ready to retire and not not sure right. what comes after this. Because when you sometimes when you retire or you're taken out of work, you lose your identity. This has been me for 20 plus years. You know what I'm saying? So who am I moving forward? Is there a plan? Am I just going to go home and sit and then, you know, think bad things happen? So education, training, and a big push to really reach out to as many people as we can and their families, um, bringing in their families while they're still with us and after um, to educate them and to let them know our resources that are available for their families. Because you, as a police officer, you could be struggling, you may not be struggling, but your family at home is there when you get home. And, and you have been bringing your work home with you for all these years. So maybe they're struggling. Matt, you uh, have yourself have been with Western New York law enforcement for now 15 years. You've been five years now with the Buffalo Police Department. Prior to that, 10 years with uh, Erie County Sheriff's Department. How do you feel that your background will help you in this new role? Actually, I was fortunate enough to do 12 years with the Erie County Sheriff's Department. Oh, my, uh, that, I gotta, no, I gotta ch- that, change no, my note. That's my bad. okay. I just, just, uh, just want to get the, put the I, years in there. I appreciate know? it. Uh, and that that speaks volumes over there for where I am today. And I worked for the Erie County Holding Center mm. as a supervisor there for a long time and met some of the most incredible people you could ever imagine. Their job is so incredibly difficult. You know, as a police officer, if we're dealing with somebody hostile or aggressive or, you know, we deal with them for that incident, sometimes the arrest, we take them to lockup and then we don't see them again unless there's a court appearance or we arrest them again or have dealings with them outside of work. When you're inside of a facility like that, like the holding center, you are dealing with people that are sometimes very aggressive, um, take things personal, you know, act out, whatever. But you're doing that on a 24-7 basis mm-hmm. because there's nowhere for them to go until they're sentence of state or they're released. So the mental end of that is extremely challenging. And I think by me spending the time that I did there and, and worked alongside of the people that were there, experiencing the difficulties that can happen there, has prepared me for this position uh, tenfold. I mean, I prior to, to working there, I didn't have any experience with, with law enforcement or anything in those dealings. And uh, it, it's a very, very difficult environment to be in sometimes. So there's few off days. There's it feels like if you're at work, you're not up. You know what I mean? So right. and, and, and slow days. Additionally to that, I've been able, when I was there, to, as a supervisor, be able to deal with the difficult people as well, which has also helped build my experience in one patients, 
mental health issues in general, um, just training and learning and, and doing on a daily basis for a very long time um, has been wonderful. And for yourself, part of mental well-being is having those conversations with yourself, with others. And as far as your own personal experience, how do you decom- or compartmentalize or decompress all the stresses that you see on a daily basis? How do you, what advice would you, would you give those that are in the same, in the same procedure or same situation? Well, one thing is to have a good support system at home, family life, and your friends outside of work, especially. We spend so much time together at work that they are also our family in a lot of ways. But I, I would suggest once you're not at work, spend time with your friends and family that are have nothing to do with, with law enforcement whatsoever and get back to who you were before you became uh, an officer. Th- this allows you to kind of reset your mind and, and to take the focus off of work all the time. That's huge. Another thing is, if you've been doing this long enough, you have been through some type of critical incident. And that's just, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So there is zero shame in getting involved in some type of counseling or or clinical work, something, even if you don't think you have a problem, something may pop up that you really didn't think you were struggling with but now you have a chance to deal with it and it doesn't sit in the backpack and just weigh you down anymore Um, so obviously physical fitness working out eating right you know nobody's ever had you know done extremely well mentally by being in a bar five six nights a week there's so much more life and you know I'm not above anybody that I've I've been there. If you've been in this field, you have probably spent some time doing some not-so-constructive things. Um, And that's a traditional coping. I mean, that's what was taught many years ago. And it's still used today. Uh, Unfortunately, we want to try to steer away from that. We really want to move forward. Are you working with any local agencies? You mentioned some clinicians. Any entities outside of of the department that that you're working in collaboration with? Absolutely. Western New York Law Enforcement Helpline is who trains all of our peers directly. Uh, They are fantastic. They provide both a law enforcement 24-7 hotline and a family hotline. So when you would call there, they would branch you off to whichever direction you would need. Do you know that number? I do. It's 716-858-2677. Uh, they are wonderful, and someone will take your call. They, I can't speak highly enough about the people uh, and relationships I've built through that organization. I've unfortunately been on the board over there for about two years, and the effort that goes into to what, and again, volunteers. So nobody's getting paid to sit there and listen to you talk. They want to listen to you speak and tell you what's going on. Um, we also work with Operation Overwatch. They're out in Lockport. They're they're starting to uh, provide training avenues, and they have a very nice venue out there. Strive to Thrive is now putting on a, a retreat out at Beaver Hollow mm. out in Chafee. It's wonderful, and we are trying to push all of our people 
uh, and at least in Buffalo so far, and I know the sheriffs use them too, to get out there for a three-day retreat. That's awesome. It's at no cost to our people. Um, the There's trainings there. There's a giant lake, a beautiful walking trails. It's, it's just fantastic. Can I go? I'm not, I'm not law enforcement, but can I, I sign up? Well, I, let me talk to the boss <laughs> and see if we can work you in there. I'm sure we could. That's great. Uh, it, it's just fantastic. There, and then, like I said, there's agencies coming out of the woodwork from all across the country and emails full every day texts are coming in from all different people and there has been when we have major events in the past couple years people do reach out and that is wonderful it's just how do we utilize them and now being able to kind of focus all energies on on doing that and and seeing what works in other places that we're not utilizing here what can we use from other places to to make things right here? Um, so yes. What are some of those things that you might have seen or takeaways from other other departments that, or, or initiatives that you want to implement? One of the the bigger things is um, health and wellness are huge. So offering meals, uh, providing meals once a week, or allowing a certain amount of uh, healthy meals to be purchased from companies here and there uh, for our officers so they're not eating whatever's on the road that day. Um, getting together with some gyms and memberships and allowing either discounted memberships or having classes at the station houses, whatever would bring people in and give them more of an opportunity to just get going. Feel better. Sometimes about it's just awareness that there's benefits and, and, and resources available and that's 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 huge what would you say to those people that are 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 dismissing the plights of, of law enforcement how can you help humanize the the day-to-day struggle that our law enforcement members are are experiencing what i would say is the officers that i've worked with and i know many other agencies uh in general, we want to help you. Nobody goes out there looking for a major altercation or any type of anything that's going to not let them go home at night. Nobody wants to take another's life. Nobody goes out looking for that. Uh, officers are put in extraordinary situations daily. And I think if the public started to kind of think about what we've been discussing this morning is how much we deal with as law enforcement officers day in day out for 20 plus years you know the incidents we see over a lifetime are just an incredibly large amount higher than a normal person would ever have to see and one dealing with that on its own is is difficult enough and we're not trying to create any more um, nobody wants to, you know, cause anybody any type of stress or, or pain in general. we out there doing our jobs. We unfortunately sometimes uh, have to act on certain things we see. Um, I can't and won't speak for any of the things that, like you said, isolated incidents that have happened. Um, but I know that that is not the intent of, of the general police officer. Uh, unfortunately, they're put in very difficult situations, and I know everybody does their best to to just keep everybody safe and go home at night. 
I don't want to put you in a tough spot as a as a person of of, of a noted position, but what do our elected officials? What do we have to do to better aid our our members of law enforcement to do their jobs properly, to be able to have be in a solid mental headspace and operate most efficiently? I would say funding is always a large one, so you know. It's instead of taking away from us, better equip us. That's been one of the, the, the big outcries in the last few years with these isolated instances sure. that we've mentioned. Like that's been the, a big one. But funding and funding going to wellness in, initiatives or. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Um, if if a healthier officer is a happier, more efficient officer, um, that goes without saying. Uh, but again, if you, you know have the proper tools to do your job daily. Also, um, you know, there's even less chance for error. There's less chance for uh, questioning what could or couldn't have happened here. Um, a lot of, you know, things have not gotten, you know, easier for police officers. I can tell you that. If anything, they made, they're definitely, uh, it, it's, probably never been as difficult as it is today to do the job to begin with. Um, you know, I, I don't really want to expel too much on that, but uh, yes, if, if you can make an officer happier uh, at work, at home, in general, in their life, um, that that transfers into just a better career and, and better interactions with the public, better everything. Matt Cross, the Police Force's Wellness Coordinator. And for our last highlight, representation matters. Representation in the arts, and particularly theater matters. Scott Barron and Peter Johnson are two of the individuals in charge of Road Less Traveled Productions here in Buffalo. The theater group is making it their mission to feature artists of color and offer mentorship opportunities to up-and-coming thespians in an effort to help them establish their theatrical careers. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us here. Thank you. Always uh, good to see you, Scott. My first time meeting you, Pete. Uh, but uh, you're doing some uh, important work at Road Less Travel, the Bridge Program. Absolutely. Tell Very me about important. that. Bridge Program is a program uh, that Scott and I developed, a 16-week paid internship opportunity uh, for early career artists of color uh, that are looking to get into the arts and theater industry. Um, it's kind of like my baby, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as an artist myself, uh, I have a mission statement to help cultivate other early artists of color. Uh, it's something that, you know, for me, uh, I didn't really have. I didn't have a, a steady mentor or someone that I could learn from directly and learn skills from and how to navigate through the industry. Um, so that's something that I want to give back, you know, to other artists of color that are trying to figure out their way uh, in the industry. Uh, it's Certainly a lack of diversity, you know, in the industry. Uh, in, in I come from a, uh, a industry of, of theater as well as film, uh, film and television. Um, and that's kind of what the Bridge Program stands for. It's kind of bridging the gap, okay, to create that diversity uh, in the arts industry just in general. How about that, Scott, then? The idea that, you, you know, like Pete was saying, the, the diversity still isn't there, which seems kind of odd to even say you know, when I think of when it comes to leading the way for diversity I think of the arts uh, but yet it's there's still more to be done 
Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I, I think, you know, we have to remember where we live, where we come from, right? You know, Buffalo in itself has been a, a segregated community for a long time. I think that, of course, you know, we've been, I think the community at large now has recognized the importance of wanting to break down some of those barriers. Uh, and in our theater community, uh, you know, Pete and I had talked, you know, we started working together a, a number of years ago. I mm-hmm. think we've known at least 10 years ago. I think we've known each other. At Maybe least more. Long, right. long. <laughs> and, uh, and over the years, you know, Pete and I had had a lot of conversations, you know, about not only the state of our community at large, but also the state of our theater community. And one of the things that kept coming up was uh, this, uh, this question of opportunity, right? Where we, we, you know, and how do people feel safe, you know, in some of our artistic institutions? Where do they, how do they feel safe? How do they feel welcome? You know, where do they see the opportunity for themselves to work and live in, as an artist in our community, as a theater artist particularly? And, you know, we, we had some really um, deep conversations, you know, uh, coming out of COVID uh, and uh, after what happened, I think, with George Floyd. And uh, that and those conversations led us to, to think about solutions. Right. And we I've always been very interested in solutions. And uh, and Pete said, I'm interested in those kinds of solutions as well. And uh, so we started talking and brainstorming. And that sort of laid the, the groundwork for this bridge program. And why I think the bridge program is so important for us and for our community is that it addresses something. Uh, how do people? How do people find those opportunities? Right. Right. How do they find? Uh, you know, so much because of our. It's interesting because you said safe places, and I would think if you're an yeah. actor, I'm thinking more mm-hmm. actors than necessarily writers or whatever. But if you're in the theater as an actor, safety, feeling feeling safe has got to be key to being able to perform, right? Absolutely. You know, for me as a performer myself. Um, Sometimes, especially after what happened on May 14th, you don't know where you're safe at, right? Mm-hmm. And um, thinking that you're in a, a place to be able to practice your art, you know, as an artist, you don't know who's in the audience, right? Like, uh, as a performer, you know, the lights are on me. I can barely see who's in the audience. Um, so, yeah, you do want to feel safe, you know? You want to be able to, 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 to have a safe place to perform, to, to cultivate your craft, Um we would think that a grocery store would be that safe place, you know, in your own community. Um, but we've been proven otherwise, you know. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, Scott's goal to be able to create a safe haven, you know, for artists to be able to go to to perform, that was that was very key. Those conversations, like you said, those hard conversations that you were having, um, the idea of intentionality as well and making not just a – an opportunity, but making it really happen. Now, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about making this this program a reality? Well, so I, those conversations led us, I think, on a path to talk about what, how we thought that a program like this could really have impact, right? And it was important for Pete and I to not only provide this mentor inter, internship experience for someone in all in any kind of our theater uh, disciplines. So like we offer actors, designers, directors, uh, stage managers, right? Um, but then to follow that through with not only th- having that mentor in the community that can vouch for the person that they're working with, right? 
but then providing this network opportunity because so much of how you know you get a job in Buffalo theater is about who you know and who can vouch for you in that way. So to create that network along with this opportunity to gain some more experience and see how we do things at a professional theater level in Buffalo. Um, and then hopefully each year, these uh, graduates of our program then will continue to work in the Buffalo theater and be introduced in a way to the rest of the theaters to um, create that conduit, so to speak. And so you already have your class so to speak, of of people that are being mentored? Are they called uh, well, mentees? <laughs> yeah, mentees, mentees. Mentees, absolutely. We yeah. have just uh, recently celebrated the first inaugural graduating class oh, okay. of the uh, of the Bridge Program. Um, originally, when we, you know, I, I, I we have an entire marketing plan where I, I visit colleges, um, I visit, you know, other organizations, anyone that's interested, you know, in the theater, you know, community and, and being an artist, whether it's on stage, off stage, you know, I kind of do uh, a recruitment season, right? Sure. Um, so we were really, really surprised at uh, the amount of applicants that we got. We even got op- applicants that weren't in the area uh, oh. that were, you know, willing to travel to Buffalo just for this experience because, again, uh, there's really nothing like this, right? That's that that I've come across. That's why it was important for us to sure. develop it. Um, so this year we actually originally we were shooting for what maybe two to three people to to kind of come through. Um, I was really excited. It was a surreal experience. We came out with five, wow, uh, with with five students that all had their head on straight, that were passionate, uh, that were dedicated, that were. Uh, Really just, you know, that that wanted to create a career for themselves in the theater world. I was really impressed uh, with the people that interviewed. And so they've gone through the process uh, with their with their assigned mentors. They've been dedicated. Uh, and we recently had a networking event, you know, for them that introduced them to the theater community and to other artistic directors and other stage managers and people in the theater industry. Uh, we create resumes for them, you know, as well uh, to, to give them uh, something to to showcase their work, you know, what right. they can do. Um, so, and, and some of them have already been hired, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, and that, really. And that, so it's, we've, it's working. We've, we, some of them are going to work for us next year already now in in, in, that, in a capacity. And then, uh, and some of them have already moved on to other programs, you know, uh, uh, through, uh, I think, their own uh, interest and enthusiasm. So mm-hmm. it's... And not just actors that we no no and no. So we only we were had really one surprised. Actor. Only yeah. one actor. Only yeah, one. Only yeah. One. We were surprised. We had two stage managers in that in that class, and um, and um, we had a lighting. We well, we yeah. had. I'm sorry. So we had two stage managers. We had uh, one actor. We also had a sound designer as well, and then we also had an assistant director. And why why that's so important, Jay? And the, I mean, I was we were thrilled because. Out of the designers and the the technical people in Buffalo Theater, that's probably the lowest rate of diversity that you that we'll see. Right. So to, to to actually have that kind of impact right away, uh, I was I was we were thrilled. So can you explore that? They're interested. In, I mean, let's follow that then. You know, these candidates who came through and they, they wanted to be stage directors, they wanted to be in lighting, they wanted to be in sound. I mean, <coughs> well, it, let me let me just say yeah. in in my in my experience, um, I get asked on a regular basis, you know, how does someone get started? How does someone get into it? Now, for myself, um, I've been a professional actor, you know, for the last 15 years, um, stage as well as, you know, film and television. I also have a master's degree, you know, 
for someone off the street, that could be intimidating, right? So like this program is where someone essentially would get their start. Um, and there is a big misconception when people think about theater, they always think about acting. Yes. Um, for me, theater, and I tell that my students, you know, as a professor, I tell students, you know, theater is a collaborative effort, right? It's a collaborative thing. So you need the stage manager, you need the lighting designer, you need the sound designer, you need the costume designer. So there's so many more jobs that's available other than just performance. Uh, and that's kind of what, you know, the the, the aspect that I want to push to say, hey, you don't always have to be the performer. Uh, you know, if you have a knack for clothing and you know how to put outfits together to reflect certain errors or a certain feel, then maybe a costume designer is where you should you should be heading um, for someone that has organization skills and that knows how to um, coordinate things. Maybe you want to be a stage manager. So I, I think that it was, you know, trying to speak to the students to kind of find out what are their strong suits and then place them accordingly, you know, to what they were interested in and what their skill level was. One of the things that we heard consistently was that uh, a lot of our applicants were just looking for the way in. They were looking for the way in because I think for early career artists of color, that has been a barrier for a long time. Like, how do we get into sometimes very much a white centric uh, community? And uh, and 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 to be able to do what we've done even so far. And now this program will continue. I, I do want to say that post meeting with Pete and coming up with the plan for this, we had to go and raise some money then for this program as well because this is a paid internship right. program. The mentors are also paid so that they're giving their full commitment to this program. Uh, the John R. O'Shai Foundation was our, our major funder uh, for this, and we feel, and the Margaret L. Went Foundation also contributed to this program, uh, as did uh, NISCA, the New York State Council on the Arts. Uh, we got some really great feedback. Um, NISCA actually came to us once they heard about this program and said, we want to fund this program. Um, that's all uh, amazing, and we're excited because this is not just a one-off. Right, I was. We did not so want this to be. We're oh, going no, no, this is we're, our plan right now. Is we've got at least five years now planned out to five this program years. because we want to collect the data. We're going to track where our graduates go, what they do, um, because we're going to try and continue to have this evolve and and we're, we want to flood the 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 Buffalo theater community with artists of color, and uh, you know, and then you know, it, it's going to expand the level of work that producers can do in town. It's going to expand the level of work that uh, all of us can partake in, I think. And so. uh, already recruiting then for uh, the next class? Or we will, yes. Yeah. So we, we begin the actual recruiting process. Uh, it, it starts, applications open in the fall. So um, my target audience is, you know, some of the colleges where we, you know, I kind of, I visited Buff State. I visited uh, Niagara. You know, so I, I, we, we start at the college level. Um, I also, you know, recruit at, you know, even from the college level, like um, different organizations of color and things of that sort that maybe that have artistic flair to it, you know. So uh, we do that. But I, I think also in one of the Scott, the, the points that, that, that Scott was also making is that for artists of color, um, when we at, when they ask, where do they begin? A lot of times, you know, they, they want to begin in, you know, the, the quote unquote, uh, black theaters, right? So we have the Paul Robeson Theater, we have the Ujima Theater, um, but there's so many other theaters outside of that. And I think the, the the hardest barrier is to how do you cross over into other, you know, white theaters, right? How how do you do that? You know, as a, a as an African American artist myself, I don't want to be just limited to the quote unquote black theaters here. 
You sure. Know? Uh, I want to work in other theaters and I want to do other bodies of work as well. The bridge program is creating, you know, doors to, to, to be able to open for that. And just touching on something that Scott said that the doors maybe weren't open for actors, artists of color. How was it for you when you started? So I, I think that, you know, for me, the, the, the phone rang often only because there was, uh, again, a gap. And when I say that is that there were artists of color that didn't know of the other white theaters or or maybe were hesitant on working in the white theaters. And the white theaters, per se, did not have awareness of who the, the artists of color that of performance were. Right. So as a result, some of the, the white theaters couldn't perform certain pieces of work because they didn't have artists of color to be able to fill those roles. Right. Sure. So as a result, what do they do? They pass on the plays, you know, because oh, we don't we don't have enough black actors to do this show. For me, because there was a, a quote unquote shortage of black actors. Right. And for me being in the community, I didn't have a problem working. Right. Okay. But, you know, but the, the, the thing was, was that I wanted to be able to create the opportunity for more artists of color to be able to come on that journey and work at these other theaters with me. I'm going to ask the question. and I, I think mm -hmm. I already know the answer. You grew up in this area. You grew up in the city. You live here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you run into racism. Of course. I have had a, a very interesting experience. Right. So and, and when I say that I, I grew up on Buffalo's east side. Uh, my parents, you know, made sacrifices for me, and they sent me to uh, to private private high school, St. Joe's. Right, I'm very proud to be an alumnus of there. Um, but growing up on Buffalo's East Side, I kind of dealt with identity crisis, and what I mean by that is that I knew on Buffalo's East Side because I was going to a suburban school, I didn't fit in with the kids in my neighborhood. Right. Because I was the, the, the guy that was wearing a shirt and tie catching the bus. Then when I got to school as well, uh, I was, you know, the minority. So I'm, you know, maybe five blacks of, of a class of 200. So I've always kind of struggled with this identity thing. Uh, and racism has always kind of been in that forefront. You know, being five of a class of 200, I dealt with it in so many different ways. Uh, I think for me, uh, I had to learn to identify with who I was as an individual because I wasn't fitting in in either crowd. But once I, I began, began to be comfortable with who I was, that's when the things of, of, of race, it didn't bother me as much okay. because I, I, I was comfortable with who I was at that point. The idea of conversation, we, we've been, that's really kind of the genesis of this program is to have conversations about race. What about in the theater community? Is that something, again, I, I kind of look to the arts to lead the way on these types of things. But is it something that you have found, Pete, and that you maybe have seen throughout your growth of almost 20 years of running the, the program where the conversations are becoming, if not, for lack of a better term, more comfortable? I think it's it's been a, a double, you know, double-edged sword. And what I mean by that is this, this program, and I, I just confided in Scott about this the other day, I expected marketing wise for this thing to explode right because this it's one of a kind it's a great opportunity right? great no doubt. absolutely i don't know uh and i think that you know years to come we'll, we'll we'll see but i don't know if the first year if the overall masses of the public was very accepting as of yet 
you know, and what I mean by that was we expected the cover of the Buffalo News. We expected the gusto. We expected the sprees. We expected everyone to talk about this program in which they have been receptive. But marketing wise, it's been, oh, yeah, that's great. So I don't know if from the masses as of yet, if it's been well received. And, and again, we're, we're going into year two. We're going to have more data. We're going to have a lot more things. So we expect we're, we expect more outlets to be provided media wise, you know, to promote this program. But, you know, we were we were fighting an uphill battle. We appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and talk about this. But, you know, we expected a lot more, you know, especially in the beginning. And I think that people are kind of sitting on the sidelines, kind of observing right now just to see. So one of my mentors, actually one of one of Pete's mentors as well, mm-hmm. Steve McKinley Henderson, who is uh, is a is a great friend and uh, he's on our national advisory board. Uh, and he's been part of my journey with a lot of these kinds of questions for a long time. His wife, Pam Henderson, actually helped us create our racial equity vision statement as we were creating the bridge program a couple of years ago. That's the kind of work that she's involved in. You know, Steve said something really important to me a long time ago. He said, you know, people want to see a reflection of themselves on stage, right? So it was important to recognize that at some point, like, you know, we want to see stories about people who look like us and do things like us and stuff like that, right? So to gain that universal audience, we have to be showing a universal bent on the world, like how, how our world actually looks, right? We all need to strive to eliminate those barriers, create more opportunities. I just built a whole new bar and lobby in our theater. And one of the things about that is that I want all those people to come out after the show. And the arts can definitely be the new yeah. place for that. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. We also would like to thank all of our guests, Gretchen Gonzalez and Maria Valeri, Officer Matt Cross, as well as Scott Barron and Peter Johnson. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and gets re-aired each night at 9 p.m. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts or on the Amplify BTPM app, as well as on demand at WBFO.org. I'm producer Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is WBFO History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of June 12th through June 18th. I'm your host and WBFO Program Director Tom Barich. Normally I offer a series of small historical facts, but this week is a little different. It's only one fact, but it's a doozy. June 12th, 1969. A pretty amazing feat of engineering occurred on this date. The water to Niagara Falls was effectively turned off by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. What was called the dewatering of the falls was a $1.5 million project to see what could be done about erosion at the falls. It took 1,264 loads of rock and earth, which came to more than 27,800 tons, to finally dam up the water. A team of 30 workers took three days of 11-hour shifts to make this happen. Most of the job was done, save for a small but persistent stream around 2.40 a.m. on June 12th, and at 10.40 a.m. on June 12th, three final boulders were shoved into place and the dam was now holding back the eight-foot-deep water of the Niagara River. 
After the study was finished, the Niagara River and Falls returned as nature intended on June 25, 1969. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Tom Barich.